0: Welcome to Docs in Orbit, where we feature conversations with independent creative documentary filmmakers from around the world. This is Eileen Guckmann in Switzerland, and I am presenting you The Reason I Jump.
1: When I was small, I didn't even know that I was a kid with special needs. How did I find out? by other people telling me that I was different from everyone else and that this was a problem.
0: The Reason I Jump is an immersive sensory-led documentary structured around the portraits of five autistic people around the world. The film is based on a book written by a 13-year-old Japanese boy, Naoki Higashida, where he relates his experiences as a person with nonverbal autism. In this episode, I have the pleasure of talking to the director and the producer of the film, Jerry Rothwell and Jeremy Deer who are currently in the UK and are working on their upcoming projects despite the pandemic our discussion focused on the adaptation of the book, the inclusion and representation of neurodivergent people in society and films and finally on how to convey internal worlds and sensations in documentaries
1: From your point of view The world of autism must look like a deeply mysterious place. So, my big hope is that by writing this book, I can help to explain in my own way what goes on in my mind.
0: Jerry and Jeremy, first of all, thank you for this film that left me with so many emotions. Um, I think you did an exceptional job translating your protagonist's perceptions and sensations to the screen. And um, I personally believe that, that it's an important work that will become a benchmark for films about autism. I'd like to start with the development process of the film. Could you tell me how the idea of the film was born and also tell me about your personal connection to its subject?
2: Well, I'm Jeremy Deer. I'm one of the producers on the film. And we came across the book about six or seven years ago when... Um, we were sort of reading a lot around autism because my son Joss who features in the film uh, is autistic and uh, for us it answered a lot of questions that we had about our son's behaviour or it suggested a lot of uh, answers to some of the behaviours that we saw in him and it it was a really um, very enlightening and actually very encouraging and optimistic uh, experience for us to come across the book. So because we're both um, film producers, we, we thought, well, how can we turn this into a film? So we optioned the book. And, and then we went on a long process of thinking, how can we, how can we bring this to the screen? Because the book, as, as Jerry can uh, talk to this.
3: One of the first things I did was went to meet with Naoki. Um, and to talk to him about the project. Uh, I guess at that time, we were thinking that Naoki would be in the film, you know, that the film in some ways would be about him finding his voice. Um, And, but whilst he was very happy to, for the project to go ahead, he didn't want to be in the film, Um, which sent the film, I suppose, creatively off on a different path. Um, And in some ways a more exciting path where we could explore the use of Naoki's words to, as a sort of key to the lives of other uh, non-speaking autistic people around the world.
0: I think that the book is a perfect core for the film. It really connects all the individual stories so well and highlights the collective experiences between them. Um, I'd like to know how was the process of adapting it to the realities of your subjects?
2: We showed a a very early cut of the film to to a large panel of autistic people. And, to to you know to understand if we were doing this representing this in, in the right way and and um, I think some of them found it way too intense as I recall, <laughs> um, but uh, you know I think overall the certainly the feedback from them was that you know this was a a legitimate way to 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 go about that.
3: As Jeremy says, you know, the kind of process of them getting consent is kind of a long process of you know shooting, showing people material, judging how they felt about it, and, and coming back and putting
0: that in the film. I'd like to move on to the topic of representation. It's always difficult to make a film to which neurodivergence people can relate without generalizing their experience too much. I think you were very aware of this risk and that you achieved the result which is looking for similarities. While respecting differences, could you share with us your thoughts about um, about your choice of focusing on autistic people who communicate mostly non-verbally, and uh, also about the the eventual challenges of this choice in terms of representation?
3: As you say, it's it's that that issue of representation is is a difficult one. You know, we worked really closely with uh, an advisory group of autistic people who kind of looked at material we've done and kind of offered suggestions and advice based on their own experience and kind of read pretty deeply in the writings. You know, there's a growing literature of non-speaking autistic people writing in the same way Nauki does, and there's a lot of commonalities to the things that they describe, particularly the sort of sensory world that they're describing.
2: You know, the the the, the easy track to fall into is that all autistic people are the same and share the same characteristics and need to be um, you know dealt with the same and treated the same. I mean, it's it's yeah, you wouldn't say that about any neurotypical. Um, person and it's you know it's it's completely erroneous to uh, to presume that autistic people are the same because they're not and you know Joss is very different from Ben and Emma and from Artie and you know this this thing of individuality is really really important Um, because as soon as you start looking at people as a block you know you start to lose respect for them as individuals and respect is you know one of the most fundamental you know things that we need to accord to everybody um, whether they're neurotypical or, or or not um and then just answering your thing about sort of the the fact that all our characters are are non uh, non speaking i mean i think you know w- there's been quite a quite a lot of films both fictional and documentary about um verbal autistic people and that's a great thing But, you know, um, some sort of, I think it's something like 35% of people with an autism diagnosis are non-speaking. So it's a huge cohort of, of people in the autistic community. And, you know, cinema has not reflected that side of things to the same extent.
0: I think you also did a great job representing the diversity of the autistic experience through the choice of protagonists of different ages, genders and races. You shot um, in India, in the UK, the US, Sierra Leone. The film also addresses the perception of autism in different cultures and times. Could you tell us about the importance for you to include these different perspectives in the film?
3: A lot of the time, I think we represent um, particularly non-speaking autistic people through the sort of Western, often quite a Western middle-class experience. We wanted to spend more time in, in different cultures, um, you know, and I think there's some commonalities across all of those cultures in terms of um, the ways in which autistic people have been marginalised. You know, I don't think we can look at Sierra Leone and say, "Oh, well, that, you know, that only happens in in Africa," because for sure, you know, all of those things have happened within our own culture.
0: Another thing that I really enjoy is that you didn't take a pitiful approach, like some other media media's tend to do. Um, You show the difficulties, but you also attached a great importance to showing the positive and joyful aspects of the autistic experience, like being able to notice beauty in some small details or having a melodic perception of electricity. Um, Jeremy, in the film, at some point, you're with your son just in a colorful tent and you say he's having a joy that I'll never come close to. Did you want to convey this joy in the film to switch the perspectives and maybe show neurotypical people that they could actually be the ones missing out on something?
2: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, the the normal narrative, um, well, it's often the narrative in films on autism is one which leans towards slightly tra- tragic and pessimistic. And, you know, we wanted definitely not to do that. Um, you know like everybody's lives there's good there's there's light and shade and it's certainly true that I mean, the line in the 10 which is you know I say as you say I say right now just as experiencing a joy that I'll never have and and that is because you know when he when he is experiencing you know intense pleasure intense joy which his sensory experience opens him up to it's incredibly um, it's incredibly intense and he, he's, he enjo- he's so happy. I mean, he's so happy. Um, and when we're in that coloured tent, um, you know, it's, it's, it's like everything's turned up to 11 in, in the best possible way. Um, so, you know, and I, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of slightly jealous of that in a way. You know, I, I, you know there's a sort of moments that we all try to live for. And Nalki in the book who says at the end, I wouldn't, you know, actually, I wouldn't change my autism because it is I think you know what Naoki said you know it is part of it it's not it's not something that affects him it is it is him it is part of his identity Um, and and I think yes I think you're right there are also I think there is a um, there is a an intensity and a a purity sometimes that uh, that neurotypical people might, might might envy um, to, their, to their experience of the world. Uh, I think it's a little dangerous to read too much into that aspect of things but, uh, and be too idealistic. But it's also not the case that this is a, you know, life-wrecking, necessarily a life-wrecking um, way to be.
0: Jeremy, in the film, you say, I hope that there will be a society, an understanding that will mean that when we are not here anymore, my son will be okay. Is this the reason why you produced this film, to make a film that could change our society?
2: I would love to think that would be the case. I think that all of these things are incremental. They happen little by little by little. And it's interesting, when you when you look back at social attitudes to a lot of things um, which we don't think twice about now, um, 30, 40 years ago, you know, there's been huge changes towards our attitude towards uh, sexual orientation, towards, you know, race and all these. We You know, we have come a long way, I think, as... society since then and but these are incremental small changes I don't to think any obviously no no one film's going to do that but I think it I hope it'll feed into part of the conversation which is actually of course also now including for the first time autistic people which is really important um which will lead us to a better place in that future so that when I'm gone Joss is you know Joss is um Joss will find his life uh, not such a series of challenges beyond the ones posed by his autism. I and mean, that's the that's the problem, is that the challenges that autistic people face, you know, there are some which are caused by their autism, but there's an awful lot more which are caused by the societal attitudes towards autism or towards the people or towards people with autism. And that we can do something about. You know, that's what the whole, I hope, the whole direction of movement and direction of travel will be over the next 10, 20 years.
1: Every time I do something that other people wouldn't, it must make you wonder why. But don't judge me from the outside only. Spare a little time to listen to what I have to say and have a nice trip through our
0: world. Let's move on to the topic of making documentaries about internal worlds. As you heard, Naoki invites the viewers to a trip inside his world. So, in order to give the viewers a better understanding of autism, you took the approach of conveying cinematically the internal perceptions and sensations of your protagonists. Um, It's a very challenging approach in my opinion, and I'd like to hear how you decided to take it. And also, if you think that it has some limits, because of course it's difficult to replicate exactly what your protagonists are feeling
3: for this film in a way there wasn't a choice to go in any other direction um partly because it's about non-verbal worlds so you know a lot of my films in the past had a lot of words in them you know they have a lot of interviews and that kind of stuff so so for me it was from a filmmaking point of view interesting it was a great challenge and also something that really stretched and and stretched me and in which i learned lot about filmmaking i think um as you say it's like like the 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 attempt to represent any subjective world even your own through the tools of cinema is quite an imprecise thing to do and i suppose all your what you're trying to do is evoke an experience in in an audience you know you're not necessarily saying this is how the world looks or sounds or this is how an object might appear you're just trying to evoke a a slightly different Focus for in an audience from the one they would take every day. I mean, I think in doing that, what we found was that in a way, there are things about the tools of film and cinema which in them which give themselves to that. You know, cinema is about kind of focusing on things, framing them in a particular way, um, paying attention to one sound rather than to a set of other sounds. You know, so in a way, you know, cinema gives itself to to subjective.
0: I'd like to hear about your research and shooting process for the sensorial visuals. Um, For example, we see a lot of close-ups and extreme close-ups like the rain that transforms into little crystals. You use this as a way to represent the fact that autistic people have a greater attention to detail and they tend to perceive the parts of an object first and then the whole object. So how did you come up with this type of visuals and how was the shooting process?
3: So essentially what we did was really just spent time with people and then tried to experience, think about how one might experience their environments by attending to detail. So, for example, where Amrit, Amrit spends a lot of time in the living room of her house. Her house is in a huge block of flats amongst a load of other blocks of flats in in a suburb of Delhi. Um, and in 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 that room, there are fans <laughs> turning all the time because it's really really hot. Um, and it felt that you know those fans had a kind of rhythm and a pattern, and they would make shadows and they would make sounds. And and really in that one room, we had all of the means to to sort of t- tell that experience to the same detail. So so usually what we do is we'd film observationally with someone, and then afterwards spend a bit of time you know, an hour shooting the fans or, you know, we were lucky that it rained at one point, so we shot the rain or, yeah. So that was really how that, that visual approach came together.
0: I was also amazed by the work on the sound. Um, I think that this film is an auditory experience and almost a synesthetic experience because we can hear the colors and the lights, like the lights of the lighthouse in the beginning. Um, all the small sounds are amplified. Can you tell me about how you work with your sound designers to achieve this, and how was the working process to create these sounds?
3: So, so the sound designer was uh, Nick Ryan. who's a kind of sound artist who's done a lot of work around neuroscience and sound, I guess. But Nick is also synesthetic, um, which and synesthesia is something which is which is I think more common to, to non-speaking autistic people than it is in the general population. So I think Nick had a kind of a, a sort of sympathy, empathy with with. A way of perceiving sound and 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 image as as a sort of a single thing, um, and I guess Nick tried to take an approach which was quite a subjective approach to sound. So, for example, in this rain sequence, Nowki in in his in 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 his writing describes how when it's rain, when he hears the sound of rain, he may need to go through all of his memories of rain. or or of that sound in order to establish that it is raining Um, uh, and so nick kind of took the sound of rain but then also a whole set of other sounds which are similar to rain like uh crinkling paper or um you know bits of uh dust or gravel hitting a piece of paper or uh or you know things that might might sound like rain but aren't rain and made up this sequence of rain of rain based on uh on all of those sounds, and I think there's something as an from an audience's point of view where you're almost put in that position of now, where it's like, well, is that is that rain? Is that not rain? That rain sounds like paper. That you know, so so that all of those associations going on, I think, really helps.
0: Yeah, and the the editing itself is also very associative. For example, um, the way you use archives to represent autistic memory, like dots connected by experiences and emotions, rather than. A, a chronological timeline so it's a, an editing style that was very convenient for your story i think as
3: soon as you start editing associatively yeah it allows in a very different style and in most films that's it's it's not a great thing to do actually because you start to you lose the thread of your narrative drive you know and it's it's a it's a thing you don't often have the freedom to do, but in this film, we're not following a story. We're sort of following a a kind of shape and a a, a developing understanding and that allows you a different style. Uh,
0: Finally, I'd like to ask you if you could tell us a bit about your next projects and um, how have you been working through this challenging time for filmmakers and does this pandemic have a big influence on your work?
3: I've been... uh, Mostly, kind of in this room. Actually, <laughs> I'm, working, I, I, I'm working on a project where we've, we're working. We've come across sort of 300 hours of tape recordings that were made in a house that was haunted by a poltergeist. Um, so it's another project that's about kind of perception, I guess, and, and sort of subjectivity.
2: It's interesting. There's there's going to be a, a dam of content which is going to burst. I think in about a year's time. There's so many projects which are waiting to get back out into the field that come kind of january 22 i think you'll see more films than you've ever seen before in your life um which is going to be a great thing um hopefully get time to see them all
0: all right well uh i'm really looking forward to this uh thank you very much for this conversation thank
2: you i mean that was a really really enjoyable i mean yeah Great
3: questions. Thank you very much. Yeah. Often you you end up getting asked the same questions in these interviews and you asked a whole range of different ones.
2: Thanks so much. I really, really enjoyed that. Thank you.
3: Thank you. Bye. Bye.
2: Bye. Bye Bye-bye. The Reason I Jump will be playing until November 29th at Doc NYC. Thanks for listening. And tune in for our next episode, where we highlight a selection of films presented at IDFA including the opening film, Nothing But the Sun, by Arami Ulon and a conversation with Viktor Kosokovsky about his latest film, Gunda. This episode of Docs in Orbit was co-produced by Pandora Productions in New York City and Avo Ndwazoo in Switzerland, with music by Naim Akbub in Stockholm, and special thanks to Miriam Yekinkamp in Berlin. For more goodies, visit us online at docsinorbit.com and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for all the updates.